Hey, we're so glad to have you tune in to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos, your host and your teacher. And if you are blessed by this podcast, would you do us a favor? Tell it to a few close friends. Uh, They can find out more about the podcast and our ministry by visiting our ministry website at dailyinchrist.org. There is this series plus others, and there's a number of writings as well dailyinchrist.org. Also, the Daily in Christ podcast is available for free through the iTunes store. Go to itunes.com, or if you have the iTunes free application already on your computer or on your portable device, you can look it up through the iTunes store that way. Again, on the web, itunes.org, or our website, dailyinchrist.org. Well, we will be moving into Hebrews chapter 4, but before we do, I wanted to spend some time talking about um, my change of thinking concerning Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. These two chapters in Hebrews, particularly Hebrews chapter 4, speak about entering God's rest. And also there's terminology about how they refuse to enter into God's rest and the admonition, if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. We talked about that in the last installment of our study. And um, what I want to do, and this is important because it sets us up for going into Hebrews chapter 4 with fuller understanding. Uh, There are different viewpoints that people have about... uh, this idea of the rest, uh, the Christian's rest. I used to believe, again, until relatively recently, that the admonitions in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 were aimed at Christians. Now, there's a parallel uh, in these chapters between Israel under Moses and our own lives before salvation and after salvation. In our last installment, we spent quite a bit of time in Numbers 13 and 14 and talked about how uh, the nation refused to enter into the promised land. Now remember, Egypt was the place of bondage. Uh, Then God delivered them miraculously. There was the parting of the Red Sea, and then they enter into the wilderness. Uh, Primary feature there is the mountain of law, Mount Sinai. There, uh, Moses and the nation receive the covenant of law. And then there is the promised land. That is that uh, inheritance that the Lord had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before that generation. And as we mentioned in the last broadcast, again, Numbers 13 and 14, that first generation uh, refused to enter into the promised land. They had an evil heart of unbelief, and uh, there they were doomed to stay in the wilderness. So then there is the promised land as well. There is this subject of rest that's mentioned, as I said, uh, several times in chapter 3. And I used to believe that the rest referred to in these chapters and entering into that rest referred to um, refers to a second experience in the Christian life. In other words, the first epoch of the Christian life is when we are initially saved. We're delivered from uh, Egypt, that's a type of the world and our prior life. And then we're brought uh, through the Red Sea, which is a type of baptism. And then there is this wilderness wandering. 
And then there was the promised land. And that Christians still had yet to enter the rest by faith, of course, into that promised land. And that the promised land in the Christian life represents the life more abundant. So there's sort of, again, the two epics. There's the first epic of uh, initial salvation, and then the second epic represented by going into the promised land, crossing the River Jordan, if you will. And that epic represents going into the deeper life, some have called it, or the life more abundant. Well, I have pretty substantially changed my viewpoint about that, basically looking more closely at the scripture, that view that there is that second epic in the Christian life where the Christian sort of by faith gets out of the wilderness and goes into the promised land is flawed on many points. And again, this is, uh, my conclusions here are taken from looking carefully at Numbers chapter 13 and 14 and some other places in the scripture The writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is drawing a parallel to Israel of old under Moses, and that has a relevancy for us today. And so uh, that generation, do you realize, never made it into the promised land. The only two that made it were Joshua and Caleb. That is uh, extremely significant. The generation did not make it. I mean, they actually died in the wilderness. Why? Well, because of their stubborn, evil heart of unbelief, God forbade them from entering into that rest. Uh, That's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, and Hebrews chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. Going over to Numbers 14, verse 23, it says this, They certainly shall not see the land God is speaking of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. And then in Numbers chapter 14, verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Again, this Numbers 14, verse 35. So, how could there be a parallel between that generation that stayed in the wilderness and somehow a Christian in the wilderness needing a second epic of getting out of the wilderness and entering the promised land? There is no parallel. It was impossible for that generation to enter that rest, even if they wanted to. As a matter of fact, they actually tried to, and they failed. And that's recorded in Numbers chapter 14, verses 39 through 45. That generation is kind of like the Twilight Zone generation. Remember that old 50s show? Maybe you've seen some old videos of it, you know, of an individual who's trapped in their dilemma because of some sort of foolishness. They've entered the Twilight Zone. But let me ask you this question. Is the destiny of any true believer born again of God to be consumed and die in the wilderness and never enter God's rest? Absolutely not. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Now, the fear that is spoken of here 
is not a fear as in fearing God, revering him, but the fear of a certain expectation of judgment, Hebrews 10, 27, and the fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10, 31. You see, judgment and falling into the hands of the living God are not the future of those who are redeemed. If that were the case, God would be guilty of high treason in his court of justice because of committing double jeopardy. So the epic of Israel going from the wilderness into the promised land is not an epic of the Christian life happening some point after salvation. Again, the view that particular view is flawed in many points. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 says this, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Note it says the gospel was preached to them. You'll notice it did not profit them. The gospel did not yield any results for them. Why? Well, it says, because they did not mix it with faith. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it a believer or an unbeliever? What type of person hears the gospel but does not believe? Well, obviously, it's an unbeliever. We know full well what an unbeliever is. An unbeliever is not a Christian. And then it says, to us as well as them. Again, Hebrews is addressed to a Jewish audience, a mixed Jewish audience consisting of believers and unbelievers in the same congregation, just like your home church. There's going to be some people there who are saved and some of them who are not saved. And we hope that they do get saved. You know, the people in that Jewish audience could look back in history to those Israelites who refused to enter into the promised land under Moses and, uh, They could think, oh, well, those Israelites were a bunch of losers. I'm so glad I'm not like them. But the writer of Hebrews is being very pointed to those unbelieving Jews in the congregation and saying, you're guilty of this too if you do not believe in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is a similar tack that Paul makes in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, when he points out that the Jews are just as guilty before God as the Gentiles. And here's the most important point. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3 says this, For we who have believed, notice past tense, have believed, do enter that rest. As he said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. It's very clear that there is a belief that has happened in the past. And those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ savingly have entered into that rest. Let me ask you, when Israel of old entered into the land of promise, do they go back to the desert? Do they go back to Egypt? No, they didn't. Now, There might have been a lot of problems with sin, but they never went back to living and wandering in the desert or living in bondage in Egypt. That's a very, very significant point. Here's something else to think about. 
It was Moses who led them out of the um, out of Egypt by the hand of God, by the way, and into the wilderness. So the generation, the Moses generation, which represents the generation of law, were the ones who perished in the desert. Okay, now the Bible is very clear that the law, the law is not for uh, the unbeliever, not for the believers, not for the Christian. It is for the uh, non-believer, for the uh, person who is not a Christian, the person who is still a sinner, not saved by the grace of God. If you have any questions about that, that's over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Well, who was it that led the generation into the promised land? Joshua. Now, the proper Jewish pronunciation of that name is Yeshua. Let me ask you a question. Who else in the Bible is called Yeshua? Yeshua. This is a person of great stature. Well, it's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Yahshua. Do you know what Yahshua means? It means God saves. So the personage, and again, in the Old Testament, we see things in types and shadows. They're fulfilled under the new covenant uh, in Christ. Under the old covenant, there was a man named Yahshua, God saves, who led the nation, the people of God, out of the wilderness into the promised land. In like fashion, it is in the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahshua, who leads us out of bondage, out of the place of wilderness wandering under the law, and leads us into the promised land. Every single believer Every single person who has been genuinely born again by the grace of God, who is genuinely in Christ because God has placed them into Christ, every single believer has entered God's rest. They are already there. There is not the need of a second experience of grace. There is not the need of um, a second epoch in the Christian life. Someone might say to me, well, wait a minute, Mark. My Christian life is, well, it's not doing really well. It's kind of messed up. I'm not really enjoying victory in my life. Well, friend, that might very well be true. I mean, that's true for many believers. But the problem is not that you haven't entered into the promised land. You haven't entered into the rest, God's rest. The problem is you don't know what you already have. Let me repeat it again. You don't know what you already have. You don't know what God has already done for you. You see, there are so many things that are in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that are stated as simple facts. They're not promises where if you trust, you'll see it happen. They're simple facts. They're stated as facts. Uh, Grammatically, they're stated as indicatives rather than imperatives. An indicative is a plain statement of fact. An imperative is a command. I'm thinking of Romans chapter 6, verse 14, which says this, Sin shall not be 
have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, that is not a promise. You don't need to claim that one. That is a statement of reality about you if you are in Christ. And if you've been born again, you are in Christ. So Romans chapter 6, verse 14 makes the plain statement, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? You are not under law, but under grace. What can happen with a lot of Christians is they can think that they're under law, they're in bondage to sin. But the, the difficulty that they have is, is not that they're not in the situation of being not under law, but under grace. Their problem is that they are deceived. Or, or maybe they're just ignorant of the truth of what Jesus Christ has done. Again, in Romans, particularly, the statement keeps coming up. Do you not know? Especially in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know? That implies that there might be some things that Christians don't know about. And friend, what you don't know can hurt you, contrary to popular belief. The reason why so many Christians are deprived in their Christian life is that they don't know the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. See, this is so important. And that's really why Hebrews is so incredibly important. Hebrews is important for the unbeliever to wake up and realize that God's provision of grace and salvation and deliverance has already been accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews is uh, uh, sort of a jolt to the person who's in, who is a uh, Christian who is immature. Maybe they don't understand the deeper reality of the new covenant. That's a lot of Christians, actually. And then finally, there are those Christians who are walking uh, in victory. They're walking by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're facing persecution, and they're wondering, what's going on with me? You see, what we don't know can actually hurt us. Do you really honestly think that the devil, the deceiver, wants you to know the truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ? Let me give an example of something that's sort of a pet peeve that I have. Um, and, and let me kind of, well, let me just state it. I hear Christians say this in prayer all the time. Lord, be with us as we do such and such. Lord, be with us. So what is that prayer asking for? It's asking for God to be with us, right? But wait a minute. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse uh, 5, I believe, it says this. The Lord is speaking and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, in that verse, it is in the Greek extremely emphatic. It says the Lord is, it's a triple negative. I will never, I will never, I will never leave you nor forsake forsake you. So if God is saying very emphatically, I will never leave you, why are we praying for God to be with us? I mean, isn't he known as Emmanuel? Isn't that what Isaiah prophesied Jesus to be? God with us, right? I mean, isn't that the glorious truth of Jesus coming? I mean, what could be more with us than Christ dwelling 
in us the hope of glory, Colossians 1.28. So for us to pray, Lord, be with us, belies a lack of understanding of the glorious truth that God is with us. Now, when we understand that, that that really changes everything. It changes our prayers. It changes our outlook. Instead of saying, Lord, be with me today as I take the test, we can say in praise, Lord, thank you that you are with me. You never leave me nor forsake me. You are my helper. You are my confidence. And I thank you so much for that help and that confidence for this exam that I have to take. You see what I'm saying? There are things that are plain statements of fact. That's what Hebrews is. It's full of these plain statements of fact. And so the problem that a lot of Christians are having is not that they lack some second experience of grace. The problem isn't that they are not in the promised land and they have to somehow get in the promised land. The problem isn't that they haven't entered God's rest. The problem is, despite the fact that all those things are true because of Jesus in their lives, they simply don't know. And sad to say, it appears that many uh, teachers of the Word of God don't apparently know about this as well. I don't mean to be contentious here or argumentative, but dear friends, this is so true. It is There are so many things that God has already accomplished for us in Christ. You know, I used to believe that it was possible for a Christian to get in the Spirit and out of the Spirit, right? But then I was over in uh, Romans chapter 8 several years ago, and I read this incredible statement. It says this, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, that is not an imperative that tells us what to do in the Christian life. That is a plain statement of fact. It says you are not in the flesh. I don't exist in the realm of the flesh. I exist in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Someone might say, aha, there's the conditional statement. But who is it applied to? Last part of verse 9, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So here's the logic sequence. Number one, if you have the Spirit of Christ and everyone who is the Lord's, everyone who's been born again has the Spirit of Christ, then that means that um, the uh, Spirit of God dwells in you. And it also means that you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. So, so much for the theology that says, uh, well, that brother sure was not in the flesh. Or we say, oh God, help keep me in the Spirit. No, what uh, Romans chapter 8 talks about is walking according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Because it's unnatural for the person who is in Christ, a new creation, to be walking in the realm of the flesh. It's natural for them to walk in the realm of the Spirit. I know some of this stuff will grate the wrong way because we have this little kickback that says, well, it sure doesn't seem that way to me. My friend, the Bible says the just will live by faith. And if you can see it, then you don't need faith. 
Do you understand? This Christian life works on a principle of walking by faith. And if it was something that you could see, then you wouldn't need any kind of faith. But what we do is we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our faith is defined by the Bible, the Word of God. And so this idea of a second epic uh, in the Christian life of the deeper life or, or whatever, there's all different kinds of names that people use, is flawed. There is no need for us to cross the proverbial River Jordan and enter the promised land and then maybe bounce out of there, back over the river and back into the desert, you know, wandering around. The fact of the matter is, because of the, of the work of Jesus Christ, we are in God's rest. We are there. We have arrived. Now, we're going to have all of this, if you're still having difficulty um, understanding it or even accepting it, that's okay. Because in our next installment, when we get into uh, Hebrews chapter 4, you're going to see what the subject of rest, God's rest, is all about. It's going to it's going to amaze you. It's going to blow your mind. You will not believe this. Once you get a hold of this truth, it's going to begin to set into motion in your life some amazing life change. I'm excited about it. The more that I think about it, the more I dig into it, the more grateful I am for the finished work of Jesus Christ and the fact that my Christian life and yours proceeds from the place of done, of being finished. This reminds me of what's said over in Romans chapter 8, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, more than conquerors. You know, friends, it's one thing to win a game, to be a winner. You can win by one point, you know. But it doesn't say winners, It says conquerors. And what's a conqueror? A conqueror is one who defeats the enemy. The war is over. He is the victor. He is the conqueror. But in Romans chapter 8, it doesn't say that we are uh, winners, that we're more than winners. It doesn't say that we're conquerors. It says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Through him, Jesus, who loved us. Notice the tense of loved. It's past tense. When was the full demonstration of the love of God? Romans chapter 5 tells us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says that if by his death we have been reconciled to God through his death, How much more shall we be saved through his life? So thank God for what the Lord has already done. Our posture as Christians is not the posture of a loser. It is not the the place of Israel under Moses going around and around and around in the wilderness and never seeing the promised land until some future date. We are in the promised land right now. We are in the life more abundant right now. The problem is with our head. We've got bad data. We've got wrong information. 
when we have wrong belief and wrong information, it seriously affects our life. Well, I'm excited about moving into uh, Hebrews chapter 4 in our next installment. And I think things will become clearer and clearer as we move forward. Dear friend, just remember this. It's because of Jesus. The perfection of your Christian life is not based upon the perfection of your performance, God forbid. The perfection of your Christian life is based upon the perfection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect Son of God, perfect Son of Man, perfect High Priest, perfect Savior, with a perfect life, perfect blood, perfect sacrifice, perfect offering, perfect suffering, perfect death, perfect resurrection. Remember, dear friend, when he cried out, his last cry from the cross was tetelestai, the Greek word that says, it is finished. When Jesus said that, everything for us begins. Do you see it? The beginning point of the Christian life is the magnificent cry of Jesus, it is finished. More coming up in the next broadcast. Let's pray. Lord, these truths are so amazing, Lord, and we open our hearts and our minds up wide, our spirit up wide to receive them. And Father, we put into practice repentance, mind change. Lord, we realize that uh, for too long we have relied upon our own human understanding of things spiritual. We have relied even on the word of men that trumps the word of God, the truth of God. And so, Father, uh, we recognize that failing. And we say we're sorry for relying upon ourselves and our own understanding and not relying upon the glory of your truth, the glory of the new covenant. So, Lord, through your word, show us. Father, grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you by your spirit. Turn the light on that we may be able to see Jesus, his finished work, and all the completeness that we have in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friend, this just popped into my mind, but it's one of the many expressions of the fact that you are actually complete that we find all over the New Testament. This is in Colossians chapter 2. There are up to this point in Colossians many verses that speak about the greatness and the completeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 2, it says this, speaking of Jesus, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That idea of fullness means complete, filled all the way up to the brim. The fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. Nobody who's a Bible believer would dispute that. But do you know verse 10? It says this, and you are complete in him. 
who is the head of all principality and power. It means you don't need anything else. Why? Because all of God, all of the Godhead is in Jesus. And if you have him, my friend, you have it all. Thanks for joining us for this broadcast of Daily in Christ. Again, if you'd like more information, more podcasts, more teaching, visit our website at dailyinchrist.org.